All right, we're back. We're in Esther chapter 5. We've made it up to verse 9. We've seen a wicked king. We've seen the new queen. We've seen this exalted villain. Now we've got this unsuspecting hero who's put into place, but we don't know what's going to happen. So now what we need, we need a little poetic justice. We're about to see the Lord do it in a way that only, only he can. So, beginning in verse 9, the tension is high. Esther is willing to step in. But what, what can she do here? She's asked for another day. I need, I need one more day, king. King gives it to her. What's, what's going to happen? Verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So he comes out, man, it's a great day. Oh, Mordecai. <laughs> he don't like him. He don't like him. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and he brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Verse 11. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow <laughs> I am invited by her together with the king. Yet... All of this is but nothing. You know, he's doing all of this. So dramatic. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Ah, let a gallows, 50 cubits high, that's 75 feet, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. So this is sometime, we don't know when this feast was. Maybe the, the feast let out. Maybe it was a luncheon, okay? Let out. He rolls out, sees Haman. This is awful. I'm going to have another feast in my house. And I'm going to make sure that everybody knows how amazing I am. So he's going to boast of who he is and what he has and what he's done and who knows him and who he knows, right? And now he's, he's, he's tight with the king and now even with the queen. Life couldn't get better for Haman. Except that Mordecai guy. He won't glorify me as I deserve, right? So his wife and his friends say, what should, they do? what should he do to him? Hang him. Hang him high. How high? Real high. Hang him. That's what you need to do. The higher the better. Because that way, everybody can see what becomes of those who do not show honor to whom honor is due. Fetch me a tree, a big tree, tonight. So it's four in the afternoon, and I want the largest gallows that we've ever had. So they go fetch him a tree, and all night long they got the construction lights up, you know, there's the chariots, it's backed up because he's building this thing, it's just awful, right? Why they do construction this time of the year, all that's going on. But it's for a good cause because this Haman guy, this Haman guy is about to make sure everybody knows that Mordecai, is, he's, he needs to die. Now, I think it's important to notice here that self-admirers are self-deceived. Haman is so blinded by his own love for himself, he has no ability to see his weaknesses. He has no ability to see what could be coming. Now, while the gallows are being made, Haman sleeps. But there's somebody who's not sleeping. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. Haman's got a plan, and he's sleeping on it. But God is always and ever awake 
protecting and providing for his people. But God is not the only one who's awake. God says, you know what? We're going to make this king not sleep. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. Hmm, interesting. Just so happened. Late night Taco Bell, who knows? He can't sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told uh, about Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? <laughs> and the king's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. So watch, I mean, it just so happens on this very night that the king can't sleep. And if the king ain't sleeping, nobody's sleeping. <laughs> He's like, I can't sleep. Everybody, get up. We go, we gotta do this. I've I've watched Sports Center three times. It's the same thing every time. We are gonna, it's time to read something, okay? And he tells his he tells his servants to, to fetch these chronicles of his kingdom. And it just so happens that they just so happen to open to that page with the entry about old Mordecai. And the king thinks Somebody needs to honor this guy. What have we done for him? I don't even remember. What have we done for him? Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. See, remember, brothers and sisters, that good deeds are not hidden forever. In God's perfect timing, what needs to be seen is brought into the light for his perfect purposes. Verse 4. Hmm. So they're going to honor this. He says we've got to honor him. Now verse 4. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So you remember the king hadn't slept, Right? He'd been, he'd been doing this all night, right? So Haman's up early too, right? He's eager to try out his freshly uh, constructed gallows. So he strolls into the, the king's court. He's got his vanilla latte. He's, he's a happy camper. He's coming in and uh, he can't wait. Um, he's been rehearsing his lines about how Mordecai needs to die and he's going to tell the king exactly what needs to happen. We need to hang Mordecai. You know, this is going to be good, King, because what he'll do, he'll prep the way for those, the Jewish uh, Holocaust that we're about to do. Let's, let's get him first. Verse 5. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, well, I'm glad you asked. Who would the king delight to honor more than me? Oh, verse 7. Haman said to the king, well... For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the, the horse that the king has ridden on, and whose head a crown is, royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horses be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let him lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> So the king asks Haman, how should we honor? How should we honor this guy? And Haman just starts letting his daydream roll right out of his mouth. And he just, he's having one of those daydreams where, you know, you're, like at the, you're at the office and that annoying person says something and then you just like drop some wisdom and everybody in the office goes, oh yeah. That's just me. But uh, so however that happened, whatever your daydream looks like, right? <laughs> this guy... Is he is dreaming about what is going to be done for him, right? <laughs> oh. um. <laughs> you know, he's, he's thinking, everybody's like, hey, man, hey, man, hey, man. And his wife's over there, that's my, that's my boo. <laughs> Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horses you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew. 
who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. <laughs> now, I, listen, I don't have a lot of paintings hanging up, but I would love a painting of this, you know? Just like, what, what, what was Haman's face looking like? Just like, <laughs> for real? For real? <laughs> But notice here that in a moment, just like Joseph, you can go from rags to the right hand of the king. In a minute. Whenever God says it's time, then it's time. And not a moment before this would have worked. Because it just, it just wouldn't have been the same. God is working something in such a way that everybody's going to see who's amazing. And it ain't Haman. Verse 11, so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and he covered his head. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Well, thanks, honey. You know, that's, that's not what I was hoping for. He came home for a little consolation. And uh -uh, verse 14. Now, remember that banquet he was so stoked about? Yesterday, he's at home. He's like, VIP tickets. I'm going back. Well... While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Chapter 7, verse 2. As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. Verse 3. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for me my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold. I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Esther says, here's my request, king. You remember, she's been fasting about this. She's been praying about this. She's been ready for this. Here's my request. Do something about the people who want to kill me and who want to kill my people, my family. Now, poor Haman, right? Like, as if it wasn't already bad enough that he had to trot Mordecai around, he's sitting here next to, next to Esther, and he starts listening to her, and he starts putting two and two together, and he's like, oh, she's a Jew. Oh, this is, this is bad news for him. He is doomed. Verse 5, then Xerxes said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who dared to do this? Who's threatening my queen? Verse 6, Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and he went into the palace. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. You think? King's mad. He's a little tipsy. He gets up. He's like, I gotta, I gotta think. And he goes, he goes out. And Haman starts, Queen Esther, please, you've gotta, you've gotta help me. Get, get me out of this. Well, verse 8, the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where, the, where Esther was. And the king said, will you even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? No, it just gets, bad day gets worse for Haman here. King walks back in and he sees him leaning on his bride. And he misinterprets what's happening. He's begging for his life, but he walks in and he sees him right up on her. And he's like, uh-uh, you're going to do that in my house? Verse 8, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So they, 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 they put a sack over his head, mafia style. Verse 9, 
Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the, uh, of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Malachi. Then the wrath of the king abated. And this is where, if you were a Jewish audience, you would cheer. So let's try it again. Ready? So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Malachi. Malachi or Mordecai, whoever he is. Yeah. There you go. This is good news. It's so crazy. Only God could do that. You want to talk about, I mean, poetic justice. Haman built it to put Mordecai on there, and then he's the one to get stuck on it. It's incredible. Haman had boasted about coming to the feast, but now he was not allowed to enjoy it. Rather, he faces the gallows that he had prepared by his own decisions. Now, there's some, there's some reflection that I think is necessary right here. A number of things. One of the things that you notice is God's creativity in whooping people. Um, when you read through the Bible, God seems to love to whoop people with their own stick. It's, he just seems to love to do this. It's his, it's, yeah, it's masterful. Think about it. Pharaoh wants to use the Red Sea to back Israel up so that he can kill him. So what's God do? Splits the sea and then swallows Pharaoh up with it. He says, like, you, you like the sea? I'll give you some sea. What about Goliath? Goliath is fighting David, right? And he says in his hand, is his sword, he says, I'm going to do what to you? I'm going to cut off your head. David says, oh yeah? And then the Lord governs this little pebble from the stone right all up in Goliath's forehead, knocks him dizzy, knocks him unconscious. And then what does David do? He grabs Goliath's sword and then off with his head. Then you've got Haman who wants to impale Mordecai on a stick and he gets impaled. But think about the ultimate. The ultimate is that Satan would love to kill the Son of God with the cross. Torture him to death. Bleed him out. Suffocate him. But, believe it or not, God would use that as the very instrument to defeat the devil. God beat Satan with his own stick. It's through the cross that God defeats Satan and sin and death because three days later he rose from the dead with all authority and Satan is now des destined for a lake of fire having been whooped with the cross. God loves to do this. He is masterful. Now, God is glorified in that, in his justice. But there's, there's another way that justice needs to be thought about here for, for Haman. This is a sobering picture of judgment. The finger of justice is pointed right at Haman. And he had nowhere to run, and he had nowhere to hide. His fame... His fortune, his fans, none of it could help him in this moment. N nobody could do anything because he is guilty before the king. I mean, think about that. This sack is put over his head and he knows he's going to the gallows. And the worst part about this man's judgment, which is a shadow of the final judgment, I think, of all who will not repent of their sins, the scariest thing about this final judgment is that you finally see and you know the truth and you realize that you were actually wrong. That you were guilty and you were wrong and the one that you opposed was actually good. I mean, think about that for Haman here. It's a shadow of the great day of judgment for all those who oppose King Jesus. Think about this. If a wicked king takes offense at sin, how much more will the holy God 
set himself against rebels who rebel against him and against his bride, the church. The worst part about judgment, this for Haman, is that he couldn't do anything about it. It was too late. It was J.C. Ryle who said, hell is truth known too late. This is intended to sober us. God is magnified in justice. We ought be sobered by the reality of justice. I think we're also supposed to here find encouragement. <laughs> it's incredible, really, to see how God works all things together for the good of his people. I mean, and this isn't even over yet, right? He delayed Esther's request just long enough to allow the king to read at just the right time that allowed Haman to follow his evil thoughts with just the right urgency so he could be impaled as an example of perfect poetic justice. Haman set himself against God and his people, and God set himself against Haman as an example. And I think it is intended to encourage us here that if you are with the Lord and he is for you, who can be against you? But if God is against you, it don't matter who's for you. Now, this is all good, and praise God, Haman is destroyed. And it's good that God's with him and faithful because they're going to need it because they still got a problem. What's the problem that remains? Yo, that edict thing, right? Haman's dead, but the edict lives on. This is where everybody's celebrating in the movie and Haman's done, justice happens, and then it, sh and then it pans over and it shows the bomb's still ticking. And it shows the hourglass, the sand is still running down. And you're like, this ain't over. You need another miracle. You need something else to happen. Which brings us to chapter 8. A glorious reversal. So on this calendar looms a day when Jews would be destroyed. But as God always does, He has a plan. Verse 1. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So she inherits all his property. This is what often happened with criminals. They would, the Persians would, would take the criminal's property, which you can see how that could be abused, but here it was right. First time. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. Then Esther spoke, verse 3, again to the king. And she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Interesting example here, uh, by the way, of how uh, this is a micro picture of culturally. You can get rid of evil, but the, the evil is still in the culture. Like you can, you can get rid of the source, but this is still happening, right? So you have this, you get rid of the, the source of the anti-Semitism, but now it's spread everywhere. So power has shifted from wicked Haman to Mordecai the Jew. Notice here, he's, did you notice? He's referred to as Mordecai the Jew from now on. Before he hid it, but now he owned it. Right? Um, and Esther here again, bows in tears. She's interceding. Verse 7, Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, verse 8, You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So he can't delete the former edict. But what you can do is you can issue another edict that's going to work against the first one. There's those of you who work in politics, you're like, that's how we always do it. You just find a way around it. All right, well, this is what's happening. So they're going to work another edict that's going to, they can't delete the other one, but it's going to work around it. Verse 9, the king's scribe were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of... Uh, Sivan, which is May and June, and an, uh, and an edict was written concerning the Jews to all the leaders and the peoples in their language, verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and then he sent the letters, verse 11, saying that the king uh, allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and 
defend themselves, defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So basically what happens here is Mordecai takes the exact same decree. He just, he takes it and uh, he, he's like, all right, we're going to photocopy that, bring it over here. And then on the same day, all we're going to change in the language is that the Jews now are going to be the ones who are going to be able to defend themselves. They're going to be able to come against those who would destroy them. Now, this is really important to notice the motivation that is different in these two edicts. What was the motivation that was issued uh, by the king by Haman's order? What was the, what was, what was the motive of it? Hmm? Just hatred, annihilation. These are vile people. We've got to rid the earth. Notice, did you catch what is the motivation here for this edict? To defend themselves, right? So this is, this is, this is very, very important. It appears that this anti-Semitic propaganda has taken off like wildfire. So Haman's dead, but his legacy lives on. All his pamphlets are still out there. All his books, all his video, all his YouTube stuff. Everybody's watching it. Everybody's got this idea that we got to kill the Jews. Right? So this is spread. People are preparing all throughout Persia to destroy the Jews. And what this edict says is they can defend themselves against the people who are going to attack them. So this is not a free pass to imperialize. This is not a free pass for terrorism or any of that kind of stuff. They are given permission to protect themselves against those who are attacking them. All right. Verse 13, a new edict, a new edict is displayed publicly. Verse 14, they FedEx it throughout Persia. Verse 15, Mordecai uh, is exalted gloriously. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in the royal robes of blue and white with a great golden uh, crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the king of Susa shouted and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and uh, had light and gladness and joy and honor. Verse 17. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Notice the exact opposite effect of the previous edict. The previous edict went out, and everybody's freaking out, confused, terrified. This time, this new edict goes out, and among the Jews, there's celebration and joy because things are being overturned. Now, a couple things just to notice here. First of all, exaltation. Did you catch it? Mordecai, who is supposed to have died on the tree, is now exalted in glory. It's as if he's alive from the dead. Then you've got celebration, right? The people of God have joy. There's feasting, there's celebration because of the grace or the hesed that has been shown them through Mordecai and Esther. God's covenant faithfulness has lived on and they're celebrating it. Also notice, uh, you might call it conversion, might be a little strong of a word, but as this edict has gone out, did you catch what happened there at the end of verse uh, 17, I think it is? Is that where it is? Many peoples from the country declared themselves Jews. People are warned, catch this, people are warned of the coming judgment so they align themselves with the people of God. And then you have, you, I think there's, there's also lingering here this, this assurance that this death of Haman and the deliverance of Mordecai brings assurance of what is to come. While we're reading this, we're intended to see God is faithful and if God did this with Haman, and he did this with Mordecai, then we can trust that whatever's next, he's got us. You'll just notice here how God is always sowing these seeds that when Jesus comes on the scene, it's going to make a lot of sense. You're like, oh, Esther, oh, I remember. I remember the exaltation of the guy who was dead. I know what's happening. Like, all the, like you can see it. You can see this, this, these little seeds that are sown. Well, 
chapter 9, verses 1 through 16, you have a, a description of the destruction of the enemies of the Jews. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were to be carried out on the very day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to have mastery over them, the reverse occurred. <laughs> the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This, this theme of reversal is, is weaved all the way through the book. Where are some places we've seen reversal? What's happened? Start with Esther. How, how did she begin? She was an exiled orphan who became a what? A queen. Right? How about Mordecai? He was dead, basically. He was a dead man walking. And now he's what? He's alive and exalted. Right? How about Haman? There's a reversal. How was he? Exalted. And now how is he? He ain't so good. He's executed. Right? The Jews, they went from being dominated to now defending. There's these switcheroos. God does this all the time um, in this story and throughout the whole, the whole Old Testament. Right? Well, verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, as did they please to those who hated them. Verse 10. But they had uh, no hand. No, this is important. Verse 10. They laid no hand on the plunder. And then Esther's going to request an extra day. She gets it, verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. So a huge contingent of people who were seeking to kill them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This is important to notice. As they're carrying out the tax, God wants us to notice twice here, what do they not do? They don't take the people's stuff because they're not out. This is not imperialism. This is the exact opposite of what Haman wanted to do. Haman wanted to kill them off and take all their stuff. They're like, they're just defending themselves here. They don't, they're not here to get rich off of this. Now, again, though God is not mentioned, it is right to see here Israel as God's instrument of judgment against his enemies. Where other, what other book do you see God uniquely using the Jews as an instrument of judgment on his enemies? The book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, where the Canaanites are put to death because of their idolatry and their unrepentant idolatry. In the book of Genesis, God gave them 400 years to repent, and they didn't. And God sends in Israel with a unique, this is, you know, this is. Um, a unique uh, commission to be his hand of judgment. Similar sort of thing here. Verse 20, chapter 9. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes. Verse 21, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. Verse 22, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Verse 24, for Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. Notice there again, the switcheroo. And that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim. After the term pure, pur. Verse 32, and the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim. It was recorded in writing. So what Mordecai does here after this um, this defending of themselves is, has completed, he institutes a feast that is to be remembered annually. And during this feast, they name it, they name it what? They name it Purim. Why? After the lots. It sets up for every single year. Hey, remember? Remember the lots? Remember Haman casting the lots? Yeah. And if Purim, if you know anything about it, this still happens annually. If you're from a Jewish background, this, is, this happens every year, late February, early March. It's the most festive and joyful of all of the Jewish festivals. Because what you're doing is you're coming back and you're mocking the enemies who 
Yeah, who God has trampled upon, and you remember how he has delivered according to the promise. That's the heart behind it. Every single year, remember. Now, for some of us, it's hard to think, man, why would, why would you want to feast about crushing enemies? Like, that seems kind of morbid a little bit. That's, that's thought of by people who have not been oppressed. If you've been oppressed, if you've been enslaved, if you've been exiled, if your parents have been killed, if you've been demoralized, and if all of this has happened to you, when God crushes your enemies, listen, you, you want them to repent and to believe, yes, but if they will not, praise be to God that they are crushed. This is why, yeah, this is why, you know, in the Psalms, we have Psalms about this. That, that, that praise God for His judgment. This is why on the last day when we see Satan and all those who follow him cast into the lake of fire. There, is, there will be rejoicing for, for his people. Now again, we should hope for our enemies to turn and be, love our enemies. But, but what God does here is he sets up a feast. Now we've got just a couple minutes. Hang with me. Interesting observation throughout history of the Jews. What do you get when you try to exterminate the Jews? You get a feast. Think about it. Pharaoh tried to slaughter the Jews, but from it came what? You get Passover. Haman tried to execute the Jews, and from it came the feast of Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes, or, or let's back up, yeah, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? He tried to exterminate the Jews, and what did you get from that? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Judas and Pilate tried to exterminate Jesus. And what did we get from that? The Lord's Supper. Every Sunday, whenever God's people gather together, you get a feast. And then, the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist tries to destroy God's people, and then in the final showdown, God destroys him. And what do you get? The marriage supper of the Lamb. When you try and get rid of God's people, all you get is God gathering His people together to celebrate that you can't get rid of His people. He is ever faithful to His people, and they will forever sing about it around His throne. Well, chapter 10, King Xerxes imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Remember that? He's like, remember that chapter 2 thing? Over. We're paying up. Verse 2, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of his honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So that's a, not an inspired book, but you can buy it on Amazon. I looked it up. There you go. Verse 3, for Mordecai the, king, uh, for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude uh, of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So Mordecai is exalted. He served the people well. And how does the book end? Peace for the people. They thought they were going to be dead, but God in his mercy has given them shalom. Shalom. He gives them peace. Even though they forgot him. Five brief applications for your consideration on rolling out. Number one, trust that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Trust that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Again, there's, this is no excuse for sin, but, but reason for hope. Esther and Mordecai were living in Persia when they shouldn't have been there. They should have been back in Israel. Yet despite their disobedience, God worked in and through them. God specializes in working in messy, broken situation because that's all there is. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. The reason I share this is because in the midst of all of our messes, you can trust that God is working. He is always working. Rest in that. I think reading this book is intended to drive that home for our hearts. Second thing. Consider who God has made you and where He has put you. Consider who God has made you and where He has put you. God made Esther uniquely. He placed Esther intentionally. 
He used her good qualities, her abiding sin, and even her, all the wounds from her past. He used it all for his perfect purposes. I think, if, I think it would be, you would do good for your soul to talk about this with other people. Who has God made you? Meaning, what are the unique talents, abilities, experiences, pains, sorrows, joys that He has given to you to steward? And how are you stewarding who He has made you? And not only that, but how are you stewarding where He has placed you? In your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your hobby place. In the United States of America in 2019, it's not by accident that you are here. There are no accidents in God's universe. You are who you are and where you are on purpose, and God wants us to think about that. Uh, Mornay pointed this out earlier, just tied to this, is the church generally um, is much more like Esther than it is Ruth in this sense that we are exiles among the nations. Ruth is going to be in the land. She's going to flourish there. The church is always exiles outside the land in a hostile environment. Yet God has placed us there to be salt and light as Esther and Mordecai were to be. And God used them in that dark place in tremendous ways. And the church very much is the same, that we are exiles. Third thing, we mentioned this already, but we're going to do it again. Obey God and let him handle the consequences. Obey God and let him handle the consequences. Listen, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what scary thing God is calling you to do. But there's a cost to following Jesus always. But it's always worth it. And you can trust Him. And, and you know what? It, if you perish, you perish. This is why Jesus said, the first thing we got to get straight is that if you're going to follow me, you got to die. That's the first thing you got to know. Because then, when they threaten you with death, what are you going to say? I mean, there's ways you don't want to die, right? I mean, the, the gallows thing is not a good way to go. But a couple weeks ago, Greg and I were talking about this, and Greg said, what are they going to do? They could threaten me with heaven? I mean, it's a good point. Like, you gotta, what are you going to do? you going to send me to go see Jesus? I'm ready to go anyway. Just do it swiftly, please. <laughs> now, I, again, I'm not making light of suffering or martyrdom or any of that kind of stuff, but I think there's a freedom that we have that... Suffering and comfort and safety is not ultimate. What's ultimate is being faithful to God no matter what He calls you to, trusting that He will, He'll handle it. Because if they kill you, guess what? He's going to raise you from the dead. This is the hope of the gospel. Fourthly, do not fear because evil has an expiration date. Do not fear because evil has an expiration date. Listen here, I don't know about y'all, but when I was reading that story, there were times when Haman looked invincible. When the circumstances looked insurmountable. There's no way we can get out of this. This will never change, is how it feels. <laughs> but you've got to know that evil has no staying power. God rules. Do not fear to stand against evil nor to declare that you're a child of God. Matthew 11 would say it this way, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Remember that Satan will be thrown in the lake of fire. Remember that all enemies of God and his people will be fully and finally judged. Fifth and final thing, remember Esther in light of Jesus. Remember Esther in light of Jesus. You remember that Jesus taught that all of Scripture points to Him. It's true of this book as well. Remember that we have, a, we have a worse enemy than Haman. Satan is the enemy who steals, kills, and destroys. He was behind Haman, yet Jesus defeated Satan. 
We are more vulnerable than the Jews were. They were in a precarious position. They were doomed. There was nothing that they could do. How much more doomed were we in our sin? Dead in our trespasses and sins. Yet God came and entered in and delivered us. There's a better death than the death of Haman. There's a better death than that of Haman. Haman shamefully hung on a tree for his own sin. He got what he deserved. But Jesus, Jesus shamefully hung on a tree, not for his sin, but for ours. He's better. And we have a better intercessor than Esther. Esther courageously went before the king, willing to perish. How much more Jesus, who did perish, and then went into the grave, and then rose from the dead. We have one who is more glorious, uh, a more glorious ruler than Mordecai. Mordecai was exalted with, with great name and fame. Yet how much greater is Jesus, who is seated in the heavenlies, the one whose name, before his name, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. He's greater. There's a greater reversal of decree. There's also a greater reversal of decree. We were doomed with the decree of judgment that stood against us. John chapter 3 says, if you don't believe, you're condemned already. Yet now, because of Christ and His death and His resurrection, the declaration is forgiven. It's greater. A greater reversal of decree. And then finally, there's a better celebration than Purim. There's a better celebration than Purim. There's an annual reminder of deliverance from the enemies that the Jews had. Yet for the church, we have a weekly reminder. We have a weekly reminder. When we gather up and take up the song of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But even that weekly feast and gathering together is not the end of the story. That feast is a reminder of the final feast. And this is how we'll close. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, the prophet Isaiah says, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, which is death, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. That is the better feast that we are all who are in Christ awaiting. So brothers and sisters, when it feels like Haman's winning, just remember, Jesus is greater. And He wins. And He will come back soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus. That's the book of Esther. Now, in conclusion, I'm happy to take a few questions. I know we scooted through several sections there without any questions. Any questions? We'll take, I'll take questions. I'm also, if there's, if there's a, a brief comment that you think, that you heard something that was really helpful for you, that you'd like to share for a moment, this is not a time for a speech or another sermon. We just had a long one. But if there's something edifying, like this was helpful for me, right? Or if there's a question lingering, I'd love to hear. Why do I think God is not mentioned in this book? Um, it appears to me that the Jews who are in uh, Susa, who have neglected their Jewish heritage, are acting like God is not there, and they are not obeying the prophets who told them to go back to the land. But God is there, and He is faithful and present, and that is proven by His working. Even if He's not going to name His name, like they're not naming His name, God still rules and reigns over the whole thing. And I think that's being put on display with extra emphasis by not, not having his name mentioned. Good question. Xerxes, would you say he was still married to Vashti uh, even 
do I think that King Xerxes was still married to Vashti during all of this? Um, I'm not sure if you're trying to get after like a position of marriage and divorce and what uh, original like so do you, help me understand I mean he put her away so culturally it would have been seen as a divorce culturally she's in the shed and she's not coming out um, you know theologically uh, that's a trickier question in light of like I don't know how many other wives he had first and all that kind of stuff so yeah good question yep Yeah. My life, if I'm getting kind of here, something comes up, like, all right, I need to hear, you know, seek the Lord about this. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. Did this build their faith? I certainly think you see Mordecai and Esther acting more courageously as it goes along. And then I think historically, the Jews all do return to the land. Um, so eventually they're obeying and there's lots of other things going on with different rises of power with the Greeks and all this different kind of stuff. But um, I would certainly think that it renewed their faith. Again, we don't get a progress report at the end to be like, well, this is how it works for both of them. But I, it appears that they're both more bold. I know we should be strengthened by it for sure. So that's good. Any other final questions? Yeah. That's good. It's a good reflection. In case you didn't hear, she was mentioning how Mordecai's challenge to Esther about her, her position and the responsibility that she had with that, um, how, it, how it parallels with evangelism, that we have the responsibility to, to proclaim. And yes, God's going to save his people, uh, but we do have a responsibility to act uh, based upon what he's, he's given us. So that's, that's, that's good. That's good. Um, in the evangelism class that we're doing here in a few weeks, I'm doing a lesson on is not evangelizing a sin and how should we think about that. So, yeah, that's good. Any other questions about Esther? Great. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and good and real. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive it and believe it. Father, thank you that you are a God who is sovereign and rules and reigns and is always working for the good of your people in spite of us. Lord, we pray that you would help your word to land on each of us in whatever way is necessary, either to encourage or to correct or to challenge. And we pray that you would help us to be a people who look to you and trust your sovereign hand uh, and who, who rest in Christ, who is uh, the greater Mordecai and the, the greater Esther. And Lord, we, we praise you for him. And we pray it all in his name.